Hello, everyone. This is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. I have spidey senses. <laughs> For those of you who may not know what spidey senses are, the spidey part is in reference to Spider Man. And the senses are in reference to, I guess, most commonly, more commonly, at least historically, extrasensory perception. And uh, <laughs> that sounds a little bit comic book-ish, uh, going back to the Spider-Man reference. It's not all that far-fetched. Actually, there's a branch of psychology that's called energy psychology that measures all sorts of things. Uh, chakras, uh, energy fields, uh, auras. I'm not sure that energy psychology gets into auras, but the article in Psychology Today that I'm going to read from definitely gets into auras. It's July, August 2023, Psychology Today, written by Dustin W. Ballard, MD. How do you know if you're really sick? Why humans may be able to sense their own life-threatening illness. In a hospital emergency department, life-threatening illness is often spotted as easily as pornography and poor fashion sense. We know it when we see it, but for the most but for most people in most situations, sorting out true illness can be difficult. Many healthy folks seek care for nothing because they are anxious, while some very ill people stick it out at home in full-on denial or stoically convinced that they can will themselves well. What's the difference between a mind that causes illness and one that can detect sickness early? This seems like an important question, not only for the field of medicine, but also for every single living and thinking patient in the world. What are auras and premonitions? And do humans have a muted and under-recognized sense when they themselves are sick? With better recognition skills, could people serve as their own triage nurses? Call centers that give advice are great, but it would be nice if people had a reliable sense of sickness, like an epiphany of medical impairment. The accurate and reliable aura. The aura that precedes the headache of migraine is mysterious. There is a process of intense activity which seems to spread like, a, like the ripples in a pond onto which a stone is thrown, wrote British neurologist Sir William Gowers in 1906. The most frequent among the many forms is that of a small star near the fixing point. It enlarges towards one side, its rays expanding into zigzags. Auras, as we know, are common in people with migraines and migraines and epilepsy and come in a variety of forms. A kaleidoscope of lights, the smell of burnt toast, and may occur seconds to hours before the onset of a headache or seizure. For a migrainer or a patient with epilepsy, the aura is an extremely reliable indicator of impending symptoms far more accurate than routinely available clinical evaluation or testing. 
absent fancy tests like continuous functional MRI or EEG monitoring would most consider auras the gold standard of disease prediction in these cases. Yet we don't really understand where auras come from. We assume, of course, that they are associated with the excitation or injury of a specific cortical areas of specific cortical areas preceding the onset of more generalized processes. But we've not been able to capture the pathology and neuronal circuitry of this process. It is possible then that auras are a prominent manifestation of an innate mental ability to detect illness that represents a more global function. A synthesis of inputs that triggers a sense and premonition of impending illness or death. Premonitions of death. Consider other health-related premonitions. A colleague tells a story of an aunt who suffered for months from headaches and dizziness of unknown etiology. After many visits to her doctor and failed treatments, she became convinced that she was going to die. So convinced that she began preparing and freezing dozens of meals so that her husband would eat well after she passed. Ultimately, her cerebral aneurysm was diagnosed shortly prior to its rupture. She did not die, but was right about being on the verge of it. While not a rich topic in the literature, there is some evidence supporting a premonition of death as a real entity. For example, it is not uncommon for pregnant women who miscarry or otherwise lose their pregnancy to report experiencing a premonition beforehand. In a survey of women who suffered a stillbirth in their second trimester or later, 64% reported sensing that their child was not well. And there are some case reports of other kinds of premonitions sprinkled throughout the literature. Joseph Nagay, in a letter to the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, describes one such premonition in the death of an elderly patient in the hospital. The patient's family had arrived by then. Although distraught, they showed no surprise at hearing about the patient's sudden death. During our conversation, I sensed that they had expected this to happen. Remarkably, the daughter-in-law volunteered that while they visited the patient at 9 p.m. earlier that night, six hours before the patient's first cardiopulmonary arrest, the patient had held her hand and mentioned he would die tonight. Premonitions of death are also common in trauma patients. In a survey that appeared in the journal American Surgeon, of the 302 members of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, 95% of respondents reported encountering patients who expressed such a premonition, and 50% agreed that patients expressing such premonitions had a higher mortality rate. And 57% also agreed with the patient that patient willpower affects outcomes, while 44% were on board with the notion that patients have an innate ability to sense their ultimate outcome after injury. Such evidence must be considered in light of its limitations. Recall bias is an obvious limitation. There are surely many pregnant women and trauma patients who thrive or recover despite premonitions to the contrary. 
We must also distinguish the premonition of death from the ancient Chinese phenomenon, and I can't pronounce it, the final radiance of the setting sun, also called the Lazarus premonition. This refers to a scenario that screenwriters have used liberally for decades, the transient revival of the dying person before death. The situation is clearly different as it is not so much a premonition as it is the recognition of a process like a song in its last chorus that is nearly complete. And of course, absent a biological explanation, it's impossible to prove that humans have an innate sense of being sick. However, we should not be overly skeptical. We accept that animals may intuit when they are otherwise, when they or others are ill. Remember Oscar the cat who appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine after correctly foretelling the demise of over 50 patients in a nursing home, curling up with them within hours of their death. We also accept that certain animals, including my dear departed black lab, will instinctively put themselves out the pasture near the time of their death, in the case of my lab, ineffectively, as my wife kept retrieving her from the bushes. It seems biologically and intuitively plausible that humans have an innate oroscope that can sense true illness. And if it exists, there may be ways to cultivate and enhance it. And again, Dustin Dustin W. Ballard, MD, is an emergency physician, clinical researcher, Fulbright scholar, and author. And he penned the article for the podcast today, taken from Psychology Today, July, August 2023. How do you know if you're really sick? Why humans may be able to sense their own life-threatening illness. Now, is that a spidey sense? I don't know. I'm really not all that familiar with Spider-Man. I presume it might fall into that category of spidey senses or even ESP, extrasensory perception. Although most of us would consider, most of us who would consider themselves, I should say it that way first, scientists would also then not consider extrasensory perception as a valid phenomenon. They would put in the category, when it comes to psychology, a parapsychology or paranormal psychology, which means it really isn't measurable to the satisfaction of empirical standards of science and therein has to be seen not only with a strongly critical sort of lens or through a strongly critical sort of lens but a critical sort of eye and not to get too caught up in the notion that there may be some legitimacy again validity to any of it. <laughs> and if you're going to read about Spider-Man, you're probably going to read about him in a comic book. And I hardly think that to be comparable to scientific journals or see him in a film which otherwise would be all fantasy Hollywood style and would not probably then capture the essence of what we might see as a documentary. And even then with documentaries, you have to be careful. But I'll go back to the opening paragraph or two or three. 
In my hospital emergency department, life-threatening illness is often spotted as easily as pornography and poor fashion sense. And we know it when we see it. But for most people in most situations, sorting out true illness can be difficult. Many healthy folks seek care for nothing because they're anxious, while some very ill people stick it out at home in full-on denial or stoically convinced that they can will themselves well. What's the difference between a mind that causes illness and one that can detect sickness early? This seems like an important question, not only for the field of medicine, but also for every single living and thinking patient in the world. And then what are auras and premonitions? And do humans have a muted and under-recognized sense when they themselves are sick? With better recognition skills, could people serve as their own triage nurses? Call centers that give advice are great, but it would be nice if people had a reliable sense of sickness, like an epiphany of medical impairment. Now, I don't think that anxiety... (laughs) falls into the category of paranormal psychology, or at least in that general catch-all, much as possibly spidey senses or ESP. But it does bring up, I think, an important consideration, not only when it comes to knowing if you're really sick, but also anxiety itself is kind of a chicken-egg conundrum. Uh, what you're anxious over may not actually be what you suffer, but I am pretty confident the research supports the notion that prolonged, protracted exposure, self-inflicted, by the way, to anxiety, or at least self-perpetuated in a chronic dimension, does compromise autoimmune function and the immunological system. And that is a direct correlate then to health and not only health in terms of acquired disease but in the sense of getting it from someplace other than yourself self-inflicted, self-perpetuated but it could speak to genetics and the idea that you might indeed have a predisposition genetically familial that might be passed down generation to generation but that if you don't compromise or exhaust the autoimmune or immunological system or bring it to such a level of compromise that it would then be vulnerable, the onset, the the first of all of the steps that include the disease process and model would never be taken. And you may not end up there, or if you are already going down that path, there is certainly plenty of room for preventative medicine primary, secondary, tertiary care, even if it may be secondary, not primary, prevention, it could be getting into, again, already a diagnosable condition, the onset of a disease model, or then the disease model, the onset of a condition called disease. We can do a lot to mitigate that just by cleaning our act up, being physically healthy. And in that same sort of a way, anxiety, did it cause the disease? No, but it created conditions that were very hospitable. And I believe, though, anxiety is certainly legit, and (laughs) with that, a subject for a very um, sound scientific study. At the same time, though, what is it? 
what is it in terms of actuality, in terms of tangible material effect? That's been the biggest rap on a lot of psychology and psychiatry is it's unlike any of the other uh, disciplines when it comes to medicine. It's hard to measure it. It's hard to study it. Actually, there's probably less today than there was ever before. But formerly, many physicians, medical doctors, those in the medical field, would have discounted the legitimacy of psychology or psychiatry even as a science. Because it's hard to measure it. Does that make it then a matter of ESP? Does that make it then a spidey sense? It only would then be that in a preventative sort of way if we could maybe recognize I'm a bit hypervigilant here and if I'm not careful, I may actually create an inhospitable, when it comes to my health, sort of environment, culture, and with that, as the article points out, anxiety and then also denial, uh, I might not only think it's going to happen, but if something is happening that I could still see within that terrain, (laughs) as far as the progression of a disease, you could put it on some continuum, the earliest stages to have any hope of possibly correcting before it progressed too far or became such terminal, so terminal, such to the category of being terminal that I can't reverse it, I can't undo it. And that is implicit to most of the disease model's implications is that once it's labeled a disease, it can be arrested But not always, and with that, there's always a progressive dimension, even if it should be arrested through medicine or some modifications and health practices, uh, changing the culture, eating more properly, getting the right exercise, etc., etc., not worrying so much, reducing undue stress that might be self-inflicted, that might be all of psychology, or at least of our own construction, because we've given way to or fed into, unfortunately, in a hypervigilant manner, that apprehensive sort of feeling, something bad is going to happen. You could get sick. And certainly after the fact, should you survive it, you might erroneously make some correlation of cause and effect that really isn't there. Try to connect that as a premonition. Now, again, am I discounting auras or premonitions? No, I'm just saying insidiously so. It's, again, a chicken-egg conundrum when it goes to that place that I've tried to take it to or describe it on the podcast today. So for me, in a general sort of way, I just want individuals to see it as clearly as they possibly can, recognize when they may be unfortunately contributing a bit more than is actually there, They're jumping to conclusions that would make any sound scientific empirical sort of study, whether it's singularly of you or it's one of those research studies that's conducted on hundreds and hundreds of subjects. It could be grossly compromised by the subjective element. You've contaminated it 
by expecting certain certain things in the name of premonitions, you're expecting to find it, and don't be surprised if you might not get it. Is it going to be exactly what you thought? No, but what does it take? It just might take some sickness, and all of a sudden you're saying, I knew I was going to be sick. Well, how did you know? Superstitiously, you've connected those things. So for me to remain empirically sound as your psychological counselor or for me to promote the industry that I work within as true science, I just want to say this. I don't want to go out on that limb. I don't want to go out on that proverbial thin ice. I do think that we can know, it's called insight, at some level that we're doing something that's making us sick and still not want to admit it. I think we can have a strong sense when we're doing something, even if it's not psychologically driven. It doesn't have anything to do with anxiety and depression or the field of psychology or the treatment of disease or disorder that really uh, up to this point has been difficult. And that's part of the reason why psychology and psychiatry has become much more legitimate. We've been able to study it more, whether it's MRIs or EEGs, as the article points out. You can do a whole lot more to correlate that or connect that, but even then, I don't know that we can jump to that conclusion of cause-effect. It's just saying there's something creating concurrent sort of symptoms, co-occurring sort of symptoms. But again, does not necessarily mean cause-effect. But what I want to do as your psychological counselor, for the sake of you as the individual as well as the industry in general, is I want to look at this objectively. And the easiest thing for me to do is say, I think you're a bit anxious, not discounting auras or premonitions, but you know, maybe your anxiety is creating vascular problems that might be causing you to see stars or to have all of those signs, so to speak, of an impending migraine. I know migraines are, at least in measure, somewhat affected by blood pressure. And what is blood pressure affected by? The state of either sympathetic nervous system operation or parasympathetic nervous system operation. Too much fight or flight, too much norepinephrine and adrenaline, too much of that on the sympathetic nervous system operations, and you're going to be wired and be wired too long, and it will challenge. I'm pretty confident in everything I'm saying that there's research to support this, back this up. Collectively so, as essential to most theories that now are generally accepted when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapies, psychopharmacology, the use of medications and treatment of depression and anxiety, uh, and or dialectical behavior therapy, any of those that have that strong research background, or at least has been not only theorized, but has gone through the scrutiny of research, tests, uh, empirical study, sound research methodology to establish the phenomenon as well as the effectiveness of the interventions. I believe all of those things can certainly have a legitimate sort of basis in not only psychology and what evidence we have of that, but the treatment the application of all the research, the knowledge that we now have garnered, 
uh, the library of knowledge, we can use that effectively. And, and it is valid, and it is reliable, and it helps. And it helps not only reduce, as I would approach it from more the psychological side of it, it helps to lessen the stress on your body and helps to mitigate some of the risk factors when it comes to health concerns that might be secondary symptoms simply because you're working your body up to such a state of frenzy or keeping it in that elevated state of awareness. Again, hypervigilance of biochemically, so norepinephrine and adrenaline, the fight-or-flight reaction response, perceiving there to be then at some level somewhere a threat. And there's always at some level somewhere a threat, but is it imminent not being able to turn it off, not being able to then allow in that homeostatic sort of a way the parasympathetic nervous system to engage and do everything it needs to do more often than the sympathetic to calm you down, which is ideal. Rest, relaxation, restoration, mindfulness, all of those things. But you may know that. And then for the sake of being aware of that, You still may be in some defense sort of manner denying it because you're not prepared to change or maybe there's more of a psychological threat which is not then again paranormal but it is kind of then within your control. And you don't have to come up with a paranormal ESP spidey sense sort of explanation You don't necessarily have to come up with auras, chakras. You don't have to necessarily come up with premonitions to explain it. You just have to realize the human mind, when it's threatened, the human defense mechanism, as with psychology, when we're threatened, is to go into denial. It's universal. Uh, Hopefully, we don't stay there. It does sort of mitigate the impact of the threat, but nobody knows how, what the, I guess the element, I should say it this way. Nobody knows what dimension of time may separate us from the perception of something not quite right that we need to attend to either psychosocially, physiologically, psychologically, sociologically, I'm going to even include spiritually in a more cosmic sort of dimension. But between that point and when it finally gets you, but I think in the end, something is going to get you. I'd like to believe that humans, even as much we're all going to die, could die in a more healthy sort of manner without all kinds of undue, again, sickness, illness, disease. And still die. And not see that as evidence of sickness, illness, or disease. I think we've almost confused that. People can die healthy. People can die of natural causes, which doesn't mean they're sick or ill or diseased. It just means they're old and their body has a a finite, limited scope of time in material sort of regards. And we just have to be aware of that. That's okay. We can accept that. But now taking it back to more of the psychological matters, uh, why would I not want to help you to realize you're leading yourself to an early grave. All of this worrying, all this anxiety, you want to attribute it to some sort of disease model and process and you're looking for some label to put on it 
to justify the fact that you're just anxious and you have much more control of your anxiety probably than you do those things that more imminently, like migraine headaches, although, again, I've made a possible suggestion, not cause effect, but that reducing stress might even alleviate migraines. Processing stress in a more adaptive way might help to lessen the incidences of migraines, just like eating and sleeping and homeopathic sort of directed interventions can also help. Good nutrition. (laughs) Stay away from sugars and too much alcohol and too much nicotine. and Don't smoke and be careful with the vape. All those things that we know we should probably not do. Don't hang out with abusive people. Um, Love yourself. (laughs) Be kind to one another. Uh, All of those things. Treat your kids well. I mean, these are all... Factors that are within our control. Why don't we go there and make sure we're doing those things well rather than relying on premonitions and auras? It's an interesting study, but I could almost make the case it's moot. (laughs) If what you're doing is the best you can and then you're still going to die, and even if it's a disease process, then certainly that's possibly the best way to overall contextually, more generally, preserve your health and wellness over a lifetime. And should you then have an awareness, you're not going to practice a lot of denial. Why am I going to say that? Because you've kind of learned to overcome it. It doesn't have to be insight. Oh, where did this come from? I I didn't see this before. It's kind of like, again, in spiritual dimensions. Spiritually, it's endowed. Well, maybe, again, I'm not closing the door on spirituality. I tend to be a very spiritual person. But what closes the door in spirituality more than anything is my denial of spirituality or at least my denial of those kind of possibilities. I'm open, but I don't need it to explain everything. I just need it to help me realize I need to be careful with my own denial. Again, the lens of objectivity of science becomes so essential. And should I help you with whatever the causes, psychosocial, physiological, sociological, psychologically, genetics, uh, trauma, environmental stress to the degree of trauma, if I can help you with that, then I've probably done more singularly, logistically, to give you the opportunity to live a healthy, happy, well life. We can apply that not only individually, but to those around us. We can create healthy cultures. All those things, all those would be great mitigating. That would all be preventative. You still would have incidences of disease. There would always be then secondary and requirement then also of tertiary care. But maybe we just all live long, healthy, full lives and then we just die. And I don't want to minimize death. I know that it's got all kinds of implications, both spiritually, morally, virtuously. It's got all kinds of things because of fight or flight that has nothing to do with those higher sort of cognitive operations of aspiration and ideals and ideology and, you know, wouldn't it be great kind of thinking. But... Let's all be as healthy as we can. Let's all be as positive as we can. Let's all do what we can to help one another. And we'd probably all live to be older 
we'd probably have a healthier world, not only in terms of the social, but the material. We would, we would do all kinds of not only self-destructive things, we wouldn't harm ourselves. By the way, the end of that is suicide. We wouldn't harm others. By the way, the end of that is homicide. We wouldn't kill our planet. We wouldn't kill anybody. We wouldn't kill our enemies. We might not even have enemies. Now, isn't that a little bit of a high-minded thought? But I think it's attainable, at least conceptually, if we can just be real about this. It's on us. The majority of this is on us to choose what we do with our life and our world. That's not condemning, except that you don't want to recognize that and see that in that pragmatic, objective sort of way and run from it. But if you're willing to come in, even if there is defense mechanism operational, even if you're in denial or any of the defense mechanisms that go along that general sort of rule of all defense mechanisms come back to denial. And what are we denying? <laughs> the death of us. You just have to accept. Don't do it too early. Don't commit suicide. Harry Carey. Don't kill somebody else. I was able to pronounce that. Somebody else. But if you come in and you talk to the right person and you let science, empiricism, again, hypothetical reasoning, application of sound empiricism, <laughs> do a study of you and brainstorm for alternative, more adaptive sort of answers, understand the disease model... Unfortunately, that happens too. I've got to be careful what falls out of my mouth, even though it's honest and truthful. As much as truth would be my best attempt to capture the facts or honesty, my best attempt to capture the facts in truth with that idea of truth in mind. I've got to be careful because there can become this self-labeling. You're hypervigilant enough. You think it's all going to end tomorrow. You're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. You've gotten into that fatalistic, nihilistic, pessimistic sort of mode of operation. You'll grab a hold of that and run with it. And even then, I can't spare you because you won't listen to me. You've got what you really wanted, which was a pronouncement that you're going to die. Maybe those that recover from illness do so, there's a significant effect of believing that you're going to survive it simply because you're doing logistically the same thing people with cancer do once they've been declared free of cancer. They're not going to go back there and worry about that because if you spend your whole life, though you have been declared medically free of cancer, you're going to create the perfect environment for your body to be compromised in an immunological sort of way by fearing the return of cancer, that you'll kind of almost play along with it. You will encourage rather than discourage any sort of next case or next experience of it, whether it's you or even as you would watch somebody around you. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We all know about that. And that's also what I'm speaking to. So I think the article is a good one. I think it asks a lot of really good questions. I don't know that it really answers in light of hopefully at least my 
sort of take on what all this is about or what the article provoked in me as far as thinking. But you are, in some ways, truly, you are masters of your own destinies. It's called free will. It's called choice. And you could do something with it. And I can help you. I won't tell you what to do, but I can certainly help you find probably a better way than nihilism and pessimism and worry and hypervigilance and and believing that you're going to die or that you get to the point where you even think euthanism, <laughs> euthanasia, is the answer to euthanize yourself, which is sort of suicidal, I think. At least it goes in that same type of or that same sort of direction. Or being so mad, do you want to just shoot up the world? That's not good either. How do you know if you're really sick? Well, it all depends on how you measure it and really what your state of mind is. But if we attach that to valid, reliable sort of empirical study and have a measure of not only life quantity-wise, but quality-wise, I'm sure we could come up with a standard that at least gives us some room to aspire to a better than simply, well, let's just all hang out until we die. Or let's all expect death is going to come tomorrow. And I believe that is cultural as well as that's an individual thought. You can share that enough with other people. You can create a culture that looks at life that way. I don't want to live there, though. Psychology Today, July, August 2023. How do you know if you're really sick? Why humans may be able to sense their own life-threatening illness by Dustin W. Ballard, M.D., I think it's a good article, at least to the extent I might then offer an opinion as to good or bad because it provokes a lot of great thought. And that's what we wanted to do on the podcast. This is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And with that, we'd want to invite you back to our next podcast. But I also want to tell you, should you want to, you can reach out to me at Dr. M.D. Clay. DRMDClay at gmail.com or thewordhouse.com. And you can also find me on Facebook at The Wordhouse. You can email thewordhouse at frontier.com. You can call 304 523 9673, which is Word, or 304 523 Word, which is 9673. And certainly, You have no reason that you can't catch the next podcast, which I, again, indeed hope you do. Until we get a chance to talk again, though, I do want to wish you not only the best of health, but also the best of mind health. And until we get a chance to meet again, thanks. Thanks.